Hi, and welcome to another episode of CEDAR's podcast, The Greater Good, a series of conversations on policy ideas that can drive better economic and social outcomes for the greater good. I'm Jared Ball, Chief Economist at CEDAR. Today, we're taking a closer look at the findings of the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. We've known for a long time Australia's aged care system is in crisis. From horrific reports of abuse and mistreatment to the long waiting lists for in-home care and figures showing high rates of malnourishment among residents. The COVID-19 pandemic has served as yet another reminder of the challenges the sector faces. Three quarters of Australia's COVID deaths have been in aged care. To discuss this, I'm joined by Julie Ratcliffe. She's Professor of Health Economics at Flinders University and a member of CEDAR's Council on Economic Policy. Uh, she's also conducted some research for the Royal Commission. And former chair of the Productivity Commission, Peter Harris. He wrote the chapter on aged care in CEDAR's 2020 Economic and Political Overview. Peter, I'll start with you. I do want to step back a bit. And as, as you were saying before we started, this is a hugely complex area. And that's perhaps made clear by the fact that after a two-year inquiry, uh, commissioners Tony Pagoni QC and Linnell Briggs couldn't agree on some of their recommendations. But if we, if we step back from that, what do you see as some of the key issues in the aged care sector um, that have to be solved? I think there's little doubt based on the evidence that the Commission has got at their hearings that fundamental change has to be made to the aged care system in Australia and therefore it's not a question of simply throwing money at this problem, which even in recent years you can see has been the primary uh, response uh, to problem finding at the Commonwealth level uh, and uh, you know, putting funding towards specific uh, failures or aspects of the system. So fundamental redrawing of the aged care system, I think, based on the evidence that Royal Commission heard, is, is an unsurprising conclusion, and, and they have gone down that path. As you say, they couldn't agree on the broader governance structure, and, and it is, um, between the two commissioners, quite uh, an, an unusual difference because it does then thread through a number of the other most important recommendations, particularly those relating to funding. And indeed, I think that's the source of the difference between them, that uh, Commissioner Pagoni is concerned that governments can and will and are naturally incentivised uh, to limit and manage via funding. And, and Commissioner Briggs has more confidence that uh, governments will behave better in the future than they have behaved in the past in this area. So... I guess, Julie, coming to you, I mean, one of the, one of the things that uh, we do see in this report is a call for a new Aged Care Act um, that puts older people first, enshrines their rights and creates an entitlement to high quality and safe care based on need. Um, do you think a rights-based system will help ensure older Australians do get high quality care? So uh, my view on this is that... Um... If we think about a, what a rights-based system might look like, uh, my perspective on this is that it will be a person-centred system. Um, and I think 
the move towards a person-centered system is is a, is a very good uh, move forward. Um, so, you know, we 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 know that um, from the proceedings of the Royal Commission that we really need to start placing the older person at the centre of our aged care services. Um, so we need the service providers to work in collaboration with older people in their own homes and in residential care to ensure you know, that they get the, the, the care and services that they need uh, to promote their health and well-being. Um, so in that sense, from my perspective, I think that it's, it's, it's a good foundation. But obviously what we need to then do is to be able to translate uh, translate that overarching um, New Age Care Act into policy and practice. And that's obviously going to be a much bigger challenge for um, everyone um, who um, is involved in uh, the care and delivery of, of, of aged care services and every every stakeholder in Australia uh, for aged care. So we, I think in terms of what we actually need, we do need, uh, I, I reiterate um, Peter's concerns here, you know, I think we do need more public accountability and transparency around current expenditures in aged care. I think that's, um, you know, that's fundamental to um, a person-centred um, aged care system that we, you know, as a society, we need to have more accountability around public expenditures. You know, Australia's aged care system is currently 75 percent uh, publicly funded through taxation. Um, and we do need more accountability around how that money is spent. Uh, I noticed that there's an announcement today by Greg Hunt, um, which I think is really welcome uh, to commence auditing of um, service providers to find out how money is actually spent in home care. Um, I think that's that's a, a really welcome uh, move forward. Um, and we do need more transparency around that. You know, we also need to have quality indicators in aged care, which are person-centred. Um, we have uh, traditionally uh, measured quality according to clinical indicators of quality. They're, they're, they're important, obviously, clinical indicators of care quality are very important, but we do need to start measuring uh, quality of life. We need to start measuring quality of care experience from the perspective of of older people too, and we need those indicators included in the suite of quality indicators that we uh, regularly uh, use to monitor the performance of Australia's aged care system and to monitor the impact of uh, aged care reforms. And I think finally, we do need stronger leadership and governance of the sector. And this is also a key uh, element of the final uh, report of the Royal Commission. Um, so we need leadership at a system level um, and Australia's uh, government really needs to treat aged care as a, as a higher order priority uh, moving forward. P Peter, that question around, uh, you know, which, which Julia's raised as well around translating this into policy and practice and, and particularly its right, rights-based system, um, how do you see some of the challenges potentially in, in translating that into, into practice? Well, I, I do feel that there is a risk here in something as already complex and complicated as, as aged care and failing, so complex, <laughs> complicated and failing, that um, I'm, I certainly hope that the rights-based mechanism is not uh, going to further complicate things by requiring a legislative structure um, that goes beyond... Um, what I might call traditional uh, um, forms of, of, of uh, legal um, 
enforceability, if you like, or management and accountability in Australia. So I read Commissioner Bagoni's interest in this, and, and all commissioners obviously were committed to the idea of a rights-based structure. And as long as it, I think, is is consistent with what you might call um, uh, the, the legal structure that we're familiar with and translates into a duty of care, I think that's a good thing, um, a duty of care. Uh, but there is a risk here that the idea of a rights-based structure is one which is unfamiliar in Australia. I mean, sounds lovely, but doesn't apply directly in this country at the moment and could be a, a very substantial additional complication depending on how it is implemented. And so this implementation thing's really pretty challenging and I find the overall commission report to have areas where they've been quite uh, conceded and and you know um, well well cooked uh, in their approach to uh, responding to issues, and, and they appear particularly to be the ones on which they got the strongest evidence in the first year of, of the commission's existence. So, issues like abuse, complaints, staffing ratios, lack of data, uh, therefore research, basic daily fees that are insufficient to cover. Um, basic daily needs, things like that are quite well developed. Other concepts are not. And uh, the obvious one for me that stands out is, is in the, uh, the funding area, both in terms of uh, who should pay for this, if I, if I call it from the public policy side, which in the end is the taxpayer or a subset of taxpayers, uh, and who should pay for it from uh, uh, the person receiving the CARES side. And while there's a lot of language around this, these are both incredibly thorny problems, which, of course, has driven governments to be, as the Commission report shows uh, constantly, to be uh, restrictive in their approach to funding. But these two thorny problems are the cause of it. Who should pay and how much should they pay? And while there's a lot of language around that, again, from purposes of making a choice and then implementing it, there's far less guidance. And and just picking up on that funding point, and you, you made the point earlier around, you know, the investments that have been made and the money that's been, been thrown at this area. Um, there is obviously already discussion around the uh, increasing amounts that will be spent in future, uh, including being funded by a potential Medicare-style levy. Um, is, that, is that the way that we should be paying for this, in your view? Uh, well, as I say, it would have been good if the Commission had come down with a firm, clear, single recommendation, uh, and they don't. Um, so I'm sort of left myself with the kind of guidance that they've given us, which is each Commissioner has talked about the particular benefit of, of a, a, an approach. One is looking for the Productivity Commission, my former home, to do further work on this. In one way, I'd say, great idea because they're very well qualified to do so. In another way, I'd say that's going to be a delay. And by a delay, I don't mean whichever funding option you choose, you can solve this overnight. I simply mean uh, from the point of view of, of community frustration. Uh, so that's a big implementation issue for anybody uh, charged with putting this thing into effect. Um, that's going to be uh, a negative. So what we, as I said, we haven't got as clear a guidance as might have been helpful and desirable. Um, I guess Royal Commission's in their own way not really set up to do this kind of work. They, they do respond to things that they find, submissions they receive, evidence put in front of them, 
the actual public policy design works not naturally a, a function of royal commissions. Um, so from my own perspective, I mean, I, I, I'm tossing this up a, a bit, Jared. I'm not personally convinced about it, but I think there is another pathway for uh, public policy to consider here, and that is rather than the income tax levy, which means uh, all people today who are uh, income earners pay, but that means some people who, who don't, who earn their income, what I might call the wealth system, uh, pay less. And so that's a bit inequitable. Um, uh, that could be one source. A medical levy could be another source. We are tending to use the medical levy quite a lot. Um, uh, and I think, though, it might be worth considering the superannuation guarantee charge, which sounds, in principle, well, that's a kind of left-field thought. But in practice, what we're going to do with the superannuation guarantee charge in the future, if we do uh, keep increasing it, is we're going to increase people's superannuation. Superannuation is the asset in which you're meant in old age to be paying for your needs. Um, originally, there was some talk about it being a substitute for the age pension, but we know in practice that's less and less likely over time, it will reduce the age pension, won't replace it. So potentially you could consider the superannuation guarantee charge, the upcoming increases as being another form of levy or contribution, if you like, but a personal account style one. In other words, that people's superannuation, as it grows in future via the increases in the levy, could be utilised to pay for their care in old age. Now, that's a slow burn because it's the money's not available immediately, but it means increasingly as people reach old age, they'll have superannuation for two purposes. One might you might call the general purpose of sustaining themselves and the other, the lesser amount, but coming out of the increase in the charge that's expected to occur in the next five years could be an amount which contributes to their aged care. And in that sense, you do get the best of both worlds. You get, if you like, a publicly directed, because that's subsidised, right? That superannuation receives a tax subsidy. So it's subsidised by the taxpayer, um, but it's also a payment owned by the individual. And so you get a co-contribution, if you like. Now, it's just a thought, but it comes primarily from me reading what's in this uh, Royal Commission report and thinking, really, they haven't provided what I would consider to be uh, you know, the combination of how the individual in the future and the taxpayer uh, jointly contribute in some reasonable fashion between them to what is an essential improvement in the aged care system. Well, and, you know, you speak of both community frustration uh, and the funding issues and, Julie, good good point at which to bring you in because you've done some research uh, for the commission that found that Australians strongly support increased funding uh, to ensure better access to services. The federal government is reportedly considering making people use more of their retirement savings to pay for care. Um, is this a good idea? And what, what does your research suggest? Um, yeah, look, I, I, I tend to agree with Peter. I mean, it's an interesting observation. So, um... Jared, yes, we did uh, conduct some work for the Royal Commission on this topic. We actually surveyed over 10,000 Australians uh, aged 18 to 90, 91 years across Australia, um, and we asked them some of those thorny questions about um, funding for aged care. And we found, interestingly, that uh, almost 90% of our survey respondents indicated that they felt that the government should allocate more 
public funding towards uh, towards Australia's aged care system. Um, but then when we ask them about their willingness to pay for that in terms of, uh, for example, an increase in income tax, um, we found a much, much more mixed response. Um, we found that 61% of the income taxpayers in our survey, so we surveyed 10,000 people of those around two thirds indicated that they were current income taxpayers. And 61% of the income taxpayers indicated that they would be willing to pay more in income taxation to uh, support a higher quality aged care system. Um, interestingly, we did quite a lot of, this was an online survey. So this was a, uh, you know, um, a, a large scale online survey, but we did quite a lot of pre-piloting, uh, as you can imagine, uh, with the survey questions before we went out into the field. And uh, we did a lot of that work face to face with people asking them about the questions we were asking and whether they were clear and understandable, et cetera. Quite a few people actually spontaneously more or less told us that they were quite keen on the idea of um, exactly the, uh, the the scheme that Peter suggested. So um, paying for aged care potentially through their earnings of uh, superannuation funds. And I note that this is also um, being suggested as a potential new funding solution by the Australia. Australian Council of Social Services recently. So um, interestingly, we did get that kind of an observation. Now, in, in the actual survey itself, we only asked about the existing funding pillars. So we only asked about income tax and about co-contributions. Um, we do know also that, you know, we have an aging population uh, in here in Australia, uh, in common with many other uh, countries around the world. So, you know, in 2018, there were, you know, just under 33 people of traditional working age, so aged um, 15 to 64, for every person aged 85 or older. And people over the age of 85 are heavy users relatively of, of, of aged care services. By 2058, it's predicted that there'll be less than 15 people of traditional working age for every person aged 85 or older. So uh, if you think uh, you know, about predicting into the future and how we're going to fund our aged care system and elevate the quality of our aged care system into the future, you know, this is a real concern because even if the general public today are indicating to us that there's a lot of public support and you know, there is a willingness to... Um, to, to, to pay more income taxation to support a higher quality system. Moving forward, that that um, potential income source is, is, is going to reduce. So we do need to think about other potential funding solutions um, outside uh, the traditional uh, funding pillars of income taxation and co-contributions. And I agree with Peter that uh, potentially the earnings of superannuation funds could be a, a new additional pillar that could support uh, Australia's aged care system moving forward. Well, there you go, Peter. You've got you've got Julie's agreement, and, and you seem to have the public the public on your side for a policy. Well, I, was, I must say, I must say, Jared, I was just sitting here with this idea, thinking, "Oh God, this is gonna, this is going to go down like a lead balloon." And that's fine. I'm really impressed me no end. Um, and and also, you've got survey work to support you, whereas mine is just uh, as ever, um, you know, one of those conceptual efforts that uh, attempt to put together two and two and pray yep. that it comes somewhere yep. before. Um, Peter, we've we've talked a little bit about some of the issues around governance and regulation. Um, the idea of an independent mechanism to set prices, um, is, this, is this something that you think that needs to change um, in the system? Oh, it's, it's essential, Jared. It's essential. 
you have to have uh, a mechanism because I think the Royal Commission says, and I think everybody acknowledges the way that um, the contributions from the taxpayer have been uh, built up over time is incremental and, and unscientific uh, and inconsistent with the needs of differing institutions. I mean, I'm particularly just thinking of, of um, uh, institutions that, that have only sort of low-income uh, people in the versus people uh, institutions that can share costs across high-income, low-income people so they can afford a, a different quality of food and things like that. So um, it, 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 you do need, you will need uh, the efficient cost of providing X determined in future by an independent authority. And the Royal Commission, at least on this, is relatively consistent. They, they have different governance models in mind, uh, but... But the, uh, I think they're together, the commissioners, on the idea that there should be this. And I, I can't see how anyone is really going to differ from it. Uh, I think the Independent uh, Pricing Authority for Hospitals has done a, a pretty good job, generally speaking, in, in working out the efficient cost of providing a procedure. And so while Commissioner Pagoni thinks that they are not as well qualified as they ought to be to do this kind of work, I do think they do have uh, capabilities that are better than most. Uh, the question, ultimately, I think that's uh, hidden in the, or not hidden, but but you've got to penetrate the Royal Commission report to discover it is um, the hospital pricing authority doesn't set the wages of nurses. Uh, Commissioner Begoni would prefer that the aged care pricing authority also sets and and directs an increase in the uh, wage arrangements for aged care workers. So that's an, again an unusual structure. For Australia, where our wage setting tends to be done by a different independent authority, uh, and here uh, as a mechanism to directing more people towards interested, being interested in, it, in a career in aged care, and therefore necessarily increasing their remuneration because it is a pretty poorly remunerated and high risk activity today. Uh, there's this thought that perhaps the pricing authority can can uh, recreate that. Um, and so the commissioners do have difference of view about how far a pricing authority would go, but but overall you've got to have one. Well, and you've just given me a very nice segue into the into the issue of wages and workforce, and and certainly the workforce is something that um, we've just started doing some work on here at at CEDA, the future workforce challenges and how you meet them in aged care. Um, Julie, the commissioners do recommend better wages and a national registration scheme. Uh, for workers uh, and they'd also have to have a minimum certificate three training. Um, so, so obviously a big focus on, on wages and quality, just how big is the, is the workforce challenge in aged care, both in terms of, I guess, the, the quality and also the quantity uh, required over over coming decades. I think the 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 workforce challenge is a, is a really large one. I think it's a you know at the centre of of Australia's aged care system at the moment. So you know we know that um, when beginning their career, you know the the award rate for a full time aged care worker is actually just over twenty one dollars an hour, which is actually slightly less than a cleaner, and it's only just over $1 more per hour than the Australian minimum wage. So we know that we know we do need to elevate um, the, the, the wage rates across the sector. We need to elevate the, the skills and training of our aged care staff. Um, so, you know, working in aged age care requires someone, you know, to, to really 
um, perform a broad spectrum of tasks, uh, you know, administering medication, identifying and treating pressure injuries, feeding, helping a person with mobility, etc. So there's a lot of different elements to the provision of aged care. Um, you know, aged care workers also need to be trained um, and more skilled in the delivery of, of, of dementia care. You know, we, we know that there's a lot more um, older people in our um, residential care facilities nowadays than there was historically who have um, dementia and cognitive impairment. You know, uh, estimates indicate up to, well, there's a fi at least 50% of older people in residential care have a dementia diagnosis, but possibly up to 75, 80% of older people in aged care currently have some form of cognitive impairment. Um, and, you know, aged care workers also need to be able to contend with the, the grief uh, and also need the, the training to be able to um, cope with end-of-life care and death. You know, I was, I was at a, an aged care conference uh, a couple of years ago and I, um, there was a presentation from... Um, someone who had done some work, I think it was a person from the National Aging Research Institute actually, who'd done some work with aged care workers um, about palliative care and end of life care. And um, she'd interviewed some aged care workers and, and some of the younger ones who were quite new and coming into the, to the, to the aged care workforce said that they didn't expect to have to deal with a person dying and they, they weren't given any training on how to deal with a person who was near the end of the life and how to cope with, you know, talking to their families and how to deal with that whole process, which beggars belief really that um, that would happen. So we do need the skills and training to be elevated. Um, we did some work recently, which was funded by the Australian Research Council, um, with aged care workers where we interviewed aged care workers across Australia and we basically asked them uh, a series of questions about their reasons for entering, staying or leaving the aged care workforce. Um, and our study revealed at least two noticeably different pathways or routes to entering aged care. So there's a proportion of aged care workers who enter aged care with a real passion for the job. Um, and a real dedication and a desire to make a difference and to really support and care for older people. And there's, but there's also a proportion of, of, of aged care workers who enter aged care as it's the only employment option. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's not rocket science to work out that uh, these different mindset, mindsets at commencement may actually be contributing quite widely to variations in the quality of care provided and in outcomes for older people and their, and their families. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really important that we attract the right people into aged care. So people with a passion for working with older adults who are really capable of building a good rapport with older people and, and their families. And, um, you know, just to mention Finally, you know, some really important work that was undertaken by Professor Kathy Eager at the University of Wollongong, which uh, was undertaken for the Royal Commission. Um, and she um, did some really interesting work around modelling and looking at um, comparing Australia's aged care workforce to that in the USA. So using uh, the USA's um, five-star rating system for staffing levels, which is based on a combination of the number of skill, uh, the number of staff um, providing the care to the older person, the skill mix, so the mix of personal care workers and clinical 
care workers and nurses, uh, for example, and the continuity of care provided. And what she found in that research, which I think was one of the first research reports from the Royal Commission, is that essentially more than half of aged care residents in uh, residential care facilities here in Australia would be classified as providing um, care that would be of only one or two star quality, according to that uh, USA five-star rating system in terms of staffing levels. And less than 2% of our uh, residential care facilities would be classed as five-star in terms of um, the rating system for, for uh, staff quality. Um, so uh, she also did some very interesting forecasting and modeling um, to um, essentially provide the estimates of what would be needed to elevate uh, staffing levels across age, uh, in aged care across Australia. So to elevate all, all uh, residential care facilities in Australia to at least a three-star level would require a 20% increase in total care staffing and to a five-star level would require a 50% increase in total care staffing. So just to give you an idea, you know, that the challenge in my view is, 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 is extremely large. But I do think that, you know, we that the sector is fully engaged uh, to uh, meet the challenge. Uh, but we do need to fundamentally increase the number of people who are working in aged care. We need to upskill their uh, skills and training. We need the right mix of um, clinical and personal care workers moving forward. And we need to attract the right people into the system, people who really want to work there and who have a passion for working with older people. Peter, just picking up on Julie's point around the, the challenge and the specific issue of staffing ratios and, and, you know, needing to move to provide minimum staff time of at least 200 minutes per resident per day with at least 40 minutes of that time with a registered nurse. Um, can, we, can we get there um, based, on the, based on the size of this challenge? Well, not in the short term, you can't, as I understand it. Um, uh, Julie's area of expertise and, and others who listen to this podcast, but RNs are in high demand in a number of areas, registered nurses, that is, uh, and it takes a long time to become a registered nurse. Uh, and uh, the commission itself has observed that it's particularly keen to see uh, training courses um, made swifter so that Certificate three training, which is their minimum preferred level training, can be uh, uh, can be provided more rapidly. But that's still a transition of a couple of years. RNs will be a couple of years beyond that in terms of increasing numbers to reach these targets of minutes. And so, the only real solution, uh, he says, taking a deep breath, is immigration. But in the current circumstances, we don't have much immigration. And even if we didn't have a COVID-related environment. Um, it's, it's a hard thing to see us skewing the immigration system towards delivering uh, aged care needs by importing uh, uh, capability from offshore, as it is, as I understand it, Australia is an exporter of nurses uh, to the UK, amongst other places. So, um, anyway, it's uh, going to be an, an unusual uh, transition, I think, through the next three to five years. Uh, that's not to say that the training system shouldn't be... Um, uh, how would I put it, um, amended is probably an understatement, shouldn't be encouraged by all mechanisms, including the fact that the Commonwealth's now more active in the TAFE area uh, than it's been in the past, shouldn't be encouraged uh, to attempt to meet this uh, 
requirement, but uh, I did notice the Royal Commission has has timeframes on the delivery of uh, its extra minutes, uh, which I, I just don't think nat naturally meet the uh, nature of the labour force and the training system and the training system's capability of, of altering uh, in Australia uh, anytime soon. Well, another thing that the, the report uh, suggests is um, that that most older people want to stay in their own homes and, and does set a bit of a target around this in terms of uh, wanting the home care, pack, home care package waiting list to be cleared by the end of this year and for it to stay clear. Um, Julie, is this a bit like the staffing challenge? It, it is um, going to be exceptionally difficult, if not impossible, to meet. I think I think I think you're right, Jared. I think it's going to be really difficult to meet. Um, I think it's badly needed. We do need to um, reduce urgently the uh, the waiting list for home care packages in Australia. Uh, I think the latest estimates were that we have around sixty thousand people currently waiting for a home care package, um, but we have another forty thousand people who are receiving a home care package, but at a lower level than their assessed care needs. So they're not getting the care needs that their own care needs met. Um, so that's also an issue. So there's, there's clearing the list and clearing the list, right? So we could clear a list. And I don't think, I think that in itself will be a very big challenge. But then if we have a lot of people who are receiving home care packages at a lower level than their assessed care needs, that's also a, a big problem and a concern. Um, so it is very important that that we do make every attempt to reduce the home care package waiting list. You know, research um, from my colleagues here in South Australia has shown that you know people are dying uh, on on the waiting list in not not uh, you know in 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 not um, in, in reason in reasonably high and concerning numbers. So we do need to address this. We also know that if older people don't receive the care and support that they need in home, they're more likely to transition more rapidly into residential care, which is obviously a lot more costly uh, for um, for the public. And it's also um, potentially far more distressing uh, for older people. Uh, we know there's an overwhelming preference uh, amongst people in Australia to stay at home. We found that in our survey of over 10,000 Australians, they indicated an overwhelming preference to remain cared for at home in their old age, if at all possible, rather than enter a residential care facility. So it, it, it's a really big challenge, um, um, Jared, but I think it's one that that, that, that the commissioners have highlighted is it's really important to, to, to face. Well, I'm conscious that we could we could talk for a very long time based on the material that we that we've got in this very um, long report. But we've talked about rights, we've talked about funding, we've talked about pricing, we've talked about workforce uh, and in home care. Um, but of course, I've got to leave the hardest question uh, to last for both of you, um, and I'll probably start with you, you Peter. Um, this is a hugely complex area. The report contains, uh, you know, almost 150 recommendations. Um, there's a lot to get through here. What should the government do first if it wants to have the biggest impact on a system that's clearly in crisis? Uh, well, I'm going to disappoint you uh, here, Jared. I think, because you put that word first in there. So I, I'm going to say to you what the government should, in my view, do and that is, number one, I've already noted the government said it will respond in the budget. So that's May. Now, some people might think that's a great idea. Quick response. Uh, I don't think a quick response will be a satisfactory response. 
people in response will probably say to me on that, gee, but it's only a down payment and they'll do more sometime in the future. I would say look in the mirror, the rear vision mirror, and you'll see that that's improbable. So my hope is that the government will take time to consider this report and will put extra work into the areas that are underdone uh, and some areas are underdone uh, in this report and will come out with a, a much more comprehensive commitment uh, inside a 12-month period, which I think is quite plausible. And I say that as a person who's done this kind of public policy translation for governments quite often, so I do think it is plausible to do it inside 12 months, but it will have to be given uh, to a purpose-built group to do just that. So that's my hope, that there is not a quick rush to, quote, do something, uh, unquote, but rather uh, a, a serious effort at putting together a, a comprehensive and internally consistent response uh, to the things that have been placed in front of the Royal Commission. And Julie, what's what's your view on that? Do you think a, a, a rapid response or a more thoughtful, um, drawn out response? What's your what's your thing? Look, I, I agree with Peter. I think that there is a risk in a rapid response that it becomes a bit of a one off, you know, quick response, and then uh, it. Tapers out into uh, no response at all down the track. So, I absolutely agree with Peter that it, it, it's it's it, we're looking at the long haul here, not 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 just the short haul. Um, I, I mean, I think in in the in the immediacy there are some elements that could be addressed. And I note that you know, as I said previously, Greg Hunt has indicated today that there will be an audit commencing of home care package expenditures. I think that's a really welcome first move. Uh, you know, we know we've done some research of our own uh, here at Flinders, which showed that um, in terms of the uh, expenditures on home care packages, you know, um, older people receive monthly statements from aged care providers. I can tell you that the health economists in my team had a lot of problems deciphering older people's home care package statements uh, in a lot of instances. And their health economists who are used to dealing with numbers and, and studying them, you know, we found it quite difficult to sort of forensically examine these statements to work out exactly what um, what older people were paying for. We do know from that work that we found that over 40% generally of home care package expenditures was being allocated by the service providers to fees for um for you know directing uh, for for helping the person with their care and, and administration fees etc so that that that's that's you know less than 40% sorry sorry less than 60% of um, a home care package actually going on direct care to the person so i think the auditing of the home care uh, sector is 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 well overdue and it's a really welcome addition and i think the um you know, in the in the in the first instance, we really need to try to bring down this home care package waiting list because, as I said previously, we know people are dying on the waiting list. They're entering residential care more quickly. Um, you know, I'm sure that they're also costing the health system a lot more. Uh, if they're if older people not getting the care and services they need in the in the community, it's likely that they're, uh, you know, in and in and out of hospital far more frequently, etc. So there's a lot of knock-on. Um, intrinsic links with the healthcare system as well here that I think um, we need to we need to quantify too so so that would be um, I think my my view 
Jared. So largely um, really completely agreeing with Peter, I think. <laughs> so I think Peter and I are in, in synergy on a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, sorry, we haven't, we haven't, yeah, we're the yeah, that's people, right. we haven't really you, you need, caused a great debate contention. here because we kind of agree <laughs> on a lot of things, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Well, don't worry. As soon as you put the uh, superannuation idea out there, I can assure well, you it'll be. Well, <laughs> I'll be rock throwing. Maybe we should from put everywhere. you both on a future inquiry, um, but so that we can we can get some consensus on recommendations. But um, clearly, clearly, twenty twenty one is going to be a big year in terms of decisions on on this. And uh, as you say, hopefully, uh, we are in for a long haul uh, commitment and and response to address. Uh, the state of the sector. Thank you both for, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Jared. Thank Thanks, you, Jared. Peter. Well, that was Julie Ratcliffe. She's Professor of Health Economics at Flinders University and a member of CEDAR's Council on Economic Policy. And of course, we had former chair of the Productivity Commission, Peter Harris. And if you want to hear more CEDA conversations on policy solutions for the greater good, you can subscribe using your favourite podcasting app. Rating our shows helps others find them too. So thanks for doing that. Until next time, take care.